This morning I'll be taking my text from the book of Ephesians once again. Today we'll be looking in particular at verse 16. Again, what we've been looking at here is the armor of God. And Paul tells us that as Christians, because there is a devil and because he goes about, as Peter says, going about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, then obviously we need to stand and we need to withstand and we need to be faithful and to resist the devil. Well, in order to do that, the apostle here gives us some armor or pieces of armor that we are to put on, as it were, in the imagery here that is set forth. We're in a battle and we're on the battlefield and our foe is Satan and his wiles, the world and all that kind of thing. And we're to go out and we're to fight and we're to do so not in our just street clothes, so to speak, but we're to wear the armor that God has given unto us. And if we don't put it on, then obviously we can definitely be wounded. And uh, so we have enough, hard enough time fighting against the devil. And so we want to do it in the way and manner which we know God would have us to do so. So let's begin reading in verse 13, and I'll just stop at the end of verse 16. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. As I said, we want to look at verse 16 this morning. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. We come now then to what is called the fourth piece of armor. That's verse 16. And as we see here, it is called the shield of faith. This text here divides itself up quite nicely into two headings. One would be the exhortation there to take the shield of faith. And then secondly, the reason or the, the use for the shield of faith. In other words, we have the shield. What are we to do with it? What would be the good of the shield? Well, this is what we want to look at this morning as we come to verse 16. You notice here the text opens up by saying, above all, taking the shield of faith. Notice the phrase there, above all. The apostle uses, I believe, this text or this phrase to kind of, as it were, catch our attention, something to the importance of this piece of armor. Now, the pieces of armor that we've looked at thus far certainly are very important. Truth is important. Righteousness is important. And the gospel, that definitely is important. And all those are, we would consider, very basic biblical doctrines. And those have, those have been some of the pieces of the armory that began there in verse 14. And uh, stand therefore having your loins girt about with the truth. That is the doctrines of the truth of God's word. Having on the breastplate of righteousness. And we said that's the righteousness of Christ that's imputed to us. And then verse 15. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And there we saw the need and the necessity of the gospel itself. And so we would say, yeah, those are very, very important. But Paul recognizes that as well and says, well, you know, we're going to talk about another one. And I don't want you to see that this is any less of an importance. It's true. Truth is important. Righteousness is important. The gospel is important. But he says, above all, though, taking the shield of faith. 
So Paul here doesn't want us to underestimate, as it were, the importance of this piece of armor that we're going to be putting on this morning. So the word, the phrase there, above all, means chiefly or supremely. While you have those other pieces on, don't forget this as well. Take up the shield of faith. Well, we're going to handle this as we normally do. We're going to kind of look at it phrase by phrase or point by point as far as the things that it's talking about. The first thing I want us to see is the shield. The shield. Secondly, faith. And then thirdly, faith as a shield. And then lastly, the fiery darts of the wicked. So let's look at it then. We notice he says here the shield, or obviously taking the shield of faith, and we just want to look at the idea of a shield. The shield, as you know, was a piece of the armor that was mainly defensive. You didn't normally attack with the uh, shield. That was a piece of armor that you would put on one of your arms. If you were right-handed, you would put it on your left hand. And that would be the piece of armor that would you be used to deflect um, the enemy's blows, whether it be by sword or whether it be, in this case, the darts or by spear. And so the shield was then used mainly as a defensive. I suppose if things got really rough, I would take mine off and start beating people over the head with a shield. But that's the not the normal use of the shield, is it? The normal use of the shield is to shield from the attack of the uh, one who is attacking you. Now, shields came in different sizes. There were large shields, there were small shields, and there were middle-sized shields, obviously. And it depended upon what nation you were belonging to and probably also had to probably depend on what kind of a battle you were in, uh, uh, ending up in or going to. But the Roman shield itself was one of the, what we would call a middle-sized shield. It wasn't too big. It wasn't too small. But nonetheless, it was a shield that was used to defend. And the main purpose of its defense is to defend the different parts of the body. It wasn't like a helmet which would only cover the head and protect the head. It was unlike the breastplate, you know, that would only protect the chest area. But this was a piece of equipment which covered any and all area that needed the extra covering. For instance, if the sword was about ready to come down on your helmet, you would put your shield up because you know the helmet itself wouldn't completely uh, deflect it. So you'd have this extra covering. And so this is what Paul's trying to get us across here is that, yes, those other pieces of equipment are very necessary, they're very truthful, they're very helpful, but here we find that this is the extra piece, brethren, that will become a great help to us. And it's a shield, as it were, that would be needed in other places where it would be needed. It would give added strength to the armory that were already upon us. So there's the idea of a shield. It was to give strength. It was to be used as a defense. And we would deflect the blows of whether they were of the darts or whether they were of the sword or whether it be the spear that was coming after us. A very useful tool, we would say. A useful piece of the armory. And then the second thing I want us to see here, it's the shield, though, of faith. The shield of faith. Faith then is the life or the heart of all the spiritual graces, brethren, that we possess. 
If there is no faith in the heart of a Christian, which that's impossible, if there is no faith in the heart, then in reality, there is no spiritual life. And on the same side, if there is saving faith, even if it be so small, even if it's just a drop, so to speak, of true saving faith, nonetheless, it is still true saving faith. In other words, we don't have to have big, large faith in order to be saved. We can be saved with small faith as long as it is truly saving faith. And brethren, it is this saving faith, whether large or small, that we are to exercise in our daily life. The Bible teaches that we walk a life of faith. We live a life of faith. The Scripture says in another place, the just shall live by faith. It's not an option for us, Christian. It's not an option for us not to take on, as it were, the shield of faith and place it on our arm and go out to battle. Because in reality, it is a necessary part of our armory. It's the very heart, as it were, to everything that we do. For it's impossible to please God, you remember, without faith. So don't view faith here then as something that, ah, it's just an extra piece and I can just do with it if I don't want to do with it. I can do with it if I can't. No, we need to realize that faith is important. Without faith, again, Hebrews tells us it's impossible to please God. Well, if faith is important, then what is it? And this is where so many folks get off. They don't really know what faith is. Thankfully, you don't have to go to a theological dictionary to look up what the word faith means. Now, you can, but you know what? It may be wrong. But I'll take you to a place in the Word of God that definitely tells us what faith is. Go over to Hebrews 11, and we have a divine answer to what faith is. We have a divine definition, a scriptural, biblical definition of what faith is. So if you want to know what faith is, listen up. It's in Hebrews chapter 11. And verse 1. Now, faith, he says, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. That is what I look forward to. And it's the evidence of things not seen. In other words, it believes based upon the invisible things of spiritual realities. Or we can take it even make it shorter than that. It means taking and resting in the Word of God. Now, the word faith has its synonyms in the New Testament. You'll find the words are in the Bible itself. But faith is the same thing as belief. Faith is the same thing as believing. Faith is the same thing as trusting or resting or coming to Christ, for that matter, and other types of words that it means. But the idea there still is the same. It is taking and resting or trusting in the Word of God. And justifying faith is taking and resting in the Gospel of Christ, which is according to what? The Scriptures. Remember last week as we were looking at that passage in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul defines for us that the Gospel in summary form is the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the Scripture. Thus then, justifying faith 
And I believe this is the only kind of faith that God gives to us as far as saving is concerned in the living is a faith that believes the testimony of the Scripture concerning the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, we've made faith something far more, or we've confused faith far more than the Bible ever did. Faith is just that simple trust in the realities of what God has said. So, well, what did they do before the Bible came out? What did Abraham and what did Noah and those fellows believe before the Bible was written? They believed the Word of God. You say, how? Remember, God spoke. God gave promises. And it was still that Word that they believed. Now, thankfully today, we have the promises written out. They're in the Word of God. They're in our Protestant Bible, the Bible that makes up these sixty the books that makes up these sixty-six books of the Bible. This is the Word of God. This is the promise of God. And it is by we believing this shows us what justifying saving faith is. Look over in first John chapter two. Just some verses here. First John two and verse thirteen. Showing us here something of faith and the necessity of it and the importance of it. Paul, John writing, he says, I write unto you fathers because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you young men because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you little children because you have known the father. I have written unto you fathers because you have known that is from the beginning. Known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you young men because you are strong and the word of God abideth in you. And you have overcome the world. Now, take that thought and now go over to chapter 5 and verse 4. For whosoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our, what is it? Faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Notice that. Faith in the Son of God. And John's not saying that in some kind of a vacuum. He's talking about the Son of God whom he wrote about in his gospel account regarding Jesus Christ himself. Now, something else we could say about faith. Faith is something, or it's that thing, however you want to call it, that is exercised from the understanding and the heart and will. Romans chapter 10, one of those gospel verses, so to speak, that we go to to try to show that the idea that it's not anything mystic, uh, far away that we're trying to convince sinners of, but salvation is right here. In fact, he says it's nigh thee. Notice in verse 8, but what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is, the word of faith which we preach. That is the gospel. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Where does saving faith reside? It resides, he says, in the heart. Now, he doesn't mean the little 
pumper in the, your chest there, but he means the heart, mind, and understanding. That's what he's talking about there. You don't believe with your uh, that thing that pumps blood in your heart, in your body. You believe with your mind, your heart, your understanding, the will. And that's where faith's at. That's where it's placed, as it were. Look in Acts 37. Oh, no, there's no Acts 37. Look in Acts 8 and verse 37. I was getting away from my Protestant Bible there. But, uh, Acts chapter 8. And this is a familiar passage of Scripture. This is where the Ethiopian eunuch desires to be, to be baptized. And he goes, what does hinder me? After he had heard the gospel preached from Isaiah 53 by Philip the evangelist here, he believes it, obviously. He says, well, what doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip tells him here in verse 37, which, by the way, is not in the modern Bibles. He says in verse 37, And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, where did he believe that from? He said here he believed it. Whether you like the word or not, it's in there. I believe with all... He says, If thou believest with all thine heart... If you truly, honestly, sincerely, with understanding and knowledge, believe what I have preached unto you, that's the explanation of all of that, he says, you may. You may go down into the waters of baptism to declare your death, burial, and resurrection with Jesus Christ. The one I just preached. You shall do so. You mayest. And how does he answer back? Obviously, he gives the right response. Because we know later in verse 38, he commands the thing to stand still. And they both go down to the water and the eunuch is baptized. But what does he say? I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now notice that, brethren. Why do we want to cloud it up with all the nonsense of works and obedience? We just don't see this, do we? Again, who does God justify? He justifies the ungodly. He imputes righteousness and He doesn't impute our sins to all those who believe the gospel with all their heart. Notice again, justifying faith is that which is exercised upon Jesus Christ that is of the Scriptures. It's not any Jesus, my friend, that must be believed upon. Paul says there are many who go around preaching Jesus who is not the Jesus of the Scripture. There are many false Christs. Jesus Christ Himself said, He warned His disciples that there will be many false Christs who will arise. But they cannot save. It is only the Christ of the Scripture. Now, there's two things in particular about Him. First is His person. That is who He is. Well, He's... The God-man. Jesus Christ is truly God. John tells us in his gospel there at the very beginning in chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He also tells us that this same God who is the Word became man. He is the God-man. I quoted the verse in... First Timothy this morning, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. 
speaks of His person, who He is. He's one person uh, dwelling there is God and man. John 17 and verse 20. John 17 and verse 20. He says, Neither pray I... That's not the one I want. Yes, it is. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on Me through their word. So they have to believe on Him. Remember, Jesus told the Pharisees, If you believe that, that I am... If you believe not that I am He, what did He say? You will die in your sin. You'll die in your sins if you do not believe who Jesus is. We also have to take notice of His work. Jesus Christ, His person and His work. He was the one who came and He lived that perfect sinless life. He was made under the law and obeyed the law in all points where we could not. And then... He was taken, as we saw in Luke's account here recently, He was taken and He was crucified for man. He was crucified for our sins. He became our surety, our mediator, our substitute. He died that vicarious death, as the big boys call it. He died in our stead. In the sinner's place. The just for the unjust. The righteous for the unrighteous. And it's the one who... Paul says, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that is God's, that He might be just and the justifier of Him which believeth or has trust or faith or resting in Jesus. Again, faith in Christ. In these passages in Romans, the passage I quoted in Acts, notice what their belief settles upon. Notice what the object of their faith is. It's Christ. And it's His work. Okay, that's what we mean by when we say faith. Now, it's true. All-encompassing, it's the Word of God. We believe the Bible. In particular, saving faith is believing what the Bible says in reference to Christ as He is the Savior of sinners. Now, this then, he says, is our shield. Our shield. Brethren, if you want to quench the fiery darts of the wicked, then you put on this armor here, the shield of faith. Now we want to look here now, what is the shield of faith? A shield as a faith. Or, excuse me, I got that backwards. A faith as a shield. Well, remember what a shield is for. A shield is to protect or to defend. And remember what faith is. Faith is taking or resting in the Word of God. Thus then, faith in God's Word, using it and appropriating it, and our fight or our battle with Satan and his devices then becomes our shield of faith. We are exhorted to take the shield of faith or how faith acts as a shield then to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Remember Jesus when He was confronted with Satan there in the wilderness? 
What happened? How did Jesus deflect, as it were, the fiery darts of Satan every time he threw one at the Lord Jesus? Did he not put up, as it were, the shield of faith, the Word of God? Now, did Jesus believe really what he was saying? Well, sure he did. He was the Son of God. He believed this was his writings. This was his Word. But how did he deflect Satan's sword and spear and darts? By putting up the shield of faith. Trusting in the Word of God. Trusting in the things of God. We need to realize that while faith is believing, yet at the same time, faith also moves us to action. Faith without works, the Bible tells us, is dead. You may be saying, well, I have saving faith. But do you keep the commandments of God? Do you love God with all your heart? Do you love the brethren? Are you faithful in the things of God? Are you faithful to God's house? And you say, oh, yes, I have faith, but I don't have any of those things. Well, my friend, your faith is void. You have no faith. Remember the quotation we gave back in Hebrews 11? What justifying faith was? What the definition of faith is? What did you notice what it does in the remainder of that chapter? It caused those men and those women to do what they did for God. Abraham left his home and went to a place that he... Didn't know, but only about what God told him. It caused Noah to build the ark. It caused Abel to offer a better sacrifice. It caused Abraham to believe that promise that he would be heir to the world. It caused Moses to despise the riches of this world and the pleasures of sin. And to refuse to be called, you remember, Pharaoh's son. But all those things, you see, brethren, moved Abraham, uh, the brethren to, be forward, to go forward and to do what's right. A faith that doesn't move us is not saving faith. Then we want to look now, lastly, at the, the fiery darts of the wicked. You notice here, it's not just the darts of the wicked. It's the fiery darts. Now, I looked that up. Uh, I have a, what they call manners and customs of the Bible type of a book. And, and they said, truly, there, is a, there were nations who would have these darts and they would be flammable. They would put stuff on them that when they liked them and then they would throw them and then they would hit you. And not only would they stab you, but that stuff that they put on the darts would cause it to spread. And even if he tried to pour water on them, instead of putting it out like oil, it would just spread it. And so the flames would go all over you. And thus, that would be a very dangerous weapon to have, wouldn't it? You remember, the, uh, remember Absalom, uh, David's son, who had rebelled against him? And remember, he got away from the battle and he got hung up in a tree and he was because he had long hair. And he was hanging there, and someone come and told Joab, Look, Joab, he's there hanging in the tree. And Joab says, Well, why didn't you kill him? I'd have given you 20-something pieces of silver. He says, I don't care if you'd have given me the whole kingdom. David said, Don't hurt his son. And uh, Joab says, I ain't got time for this. So he goes, and him and his friends, they take darts, and they throw them into Absalom, and it kills him. Those weren't fiery darts, but they were deadly because they killed Absalom. 
Can you imagine then how much more deadly and how much more destruction can fiery darts then do to an individual, to us? And this is the kind of darts you see that Satan hurls about us to wound us or to kill us. You say, well, what are those fiery darts? Well, they can be the sinful thoughts that he throws at us. It could be the temptations that he puts in our ways. It can be the world itself, which remember, he's the God of this world. And so he moves things around, as it were, to become those things to us. I'm not wanting to dwell so much on all those things as to the point of what we're looking at this morning. And that is the shield of faith as a piece of armor that will take care of the fiery darts of the wicked. Notice he says there, here's the... uh, Second part of all this, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Remember I said a while ago they would be, they would be doused with these flam- this flammable liquid. They would put on the darts and they would throw them. And if they stuck you, you would begin to burn there as well as everywhere else. And if you tried to put them out by putting water on them, that just spread it. Well, what is it then do we have, brethren, that will stop the fires... And the darts themselves. Notice what he says. It's the shield of faith. What will it do? Notice the term. It will quench all the fiery darts. What does quench mean? It means to put it out. They will put the fires of the fiery darts out. It will smother it. It will be the thing that will be the fire extinguisher as it were to... The darts that are coming at us. Notice something else. This is a, uh, another fancy word. It's efficacious. What does that mean, children? Efficacious? It means it works. Notice it says there, Wherewith ye shall be able to quench. This is not an ineffectual weapon. This is a weapon that will work. This is a weapon when it's rightly appropriated and it's correctly used will do what it is designed to do. What's the shield designed to do? It's designed to protect. And what in particular? It will quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Now you can't go wrong with that, can you? You say, well, I got my helmet. I've got my breastplate. I got my shoes on. I'm standing on a firm foundation. Do I need more? Yes. Yes, you need the what? The shield of faith. So when then Satan hurls that particular dart that is fiery and it's coming after you, whether the head or the breastplate or the feet, you will be able to hold the shield of faith up, which will not only deflect it, it will quench it. And cause it to go out. You remember when we were dealing with mortification of sin. And we talked about how that when we put on all these things, we begin to mortify sin. We, we think about the brethren. We think about the gospel and all these things. We do all this by faith. And didn't I say, you remember as you begin to do that, doesn't sin lose its strength and power? And everyone agreed, yes, that's what it does. This is exactly what we're talking about. This is why, above all, brethren, put on this. 
You see, we have to believe this stuff. Not only do we have to believe it, but we have to believe that it's effectual, that it works. So it's not just, yeah, I've got this piece here. Yeah, I've got that piece. Oh, that's a nice doctrine, the idea of the gospel. We have to be settled not only on it, but we have to believe it and trust it. And trust and believe that what it says it will do, it will do. So it's not just an academic thing here we're looking at today when we talk about the shield of faith. I'm here to tell you that when we apply and appropriate this shield, it will quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. It's a promise. You say, well, I don't believe that. Well, you, you, you ain't got the first base yet then. If you don't believe this is what it will do, then you've got to back up and go look what faith is all over again because you missed it. See, faith is believing that the promises are true. So we need to appropriate. And this isn't, oh, I'm having oh, happy thoughts here this morning and I just need to believe hard enough. That's not what All of this we recognize is a grace. A man can receive nothing except to be given from him from above. But nonetheless, faith is what? We are to appropriate in our everyday battle with Satan. Do you believe this? See, if you don't, or you doubt it, or you're not trusting, then you need to back up, and we need to go back through this whole thing again about what faith is. Because it's the shield of faith, believing and trusting and resting in these gospel truths and His promises in particular, that this is so. Wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Let's put it to test. Not sinfully and not temptingly to God, but let's put His Word to test. The next time Satan hurls a fiery dart, you put up the shield of faith and watch it work. Watch it quench the fiery darts. Well, let's get practical. What do we mean by that? Well, when Satan begins to say, you know, all this stuff, even what you're saying, the pastor's been telling that it's a lie. What do you do? You put up the shield of faith. No, it's true. And I'm resting in it. I believe in it. Satan's fiery darts it becomes quenched. There's a particular temptation you're fighting with. And you're struggling with, and day by day you may face it, and you're fighting against it. And you're saying, let me tell you, put on the shield of faith. Believing that God's promises are true, and then watch and see that that sin loses its power. We talked about this morning in the the Bible study class about how these women rested on the Sabbath. They obeyed the commandment. The temptation obviously was to them to go off and do something else, as it is with us today. This is a, if you looked outside of that, it's a great day, isn't it? Wouldn't this be a nice day to go whatever and not pay much attention to what the Sabbath's all about? It would be very tempting. But what must we do, brethren? We must put on the shield of faith and then suddenly those temptations begin to lose their power. And we can find ourselves doing what? Obeying. Listen to what he says again. By this we know we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. 
For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not grievous. This is connected. For whosoever is born, whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world. Even our faith. How can I keep the commandments and be pleasing to God unless I use the shield of faith? Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Well, let me make some inferences and observations and I'll be done. First one is this. Faith, brethren, is the instrument that we use to withstand Satan's fiery dart. Now, you say, how does it work? Well, it helps us, first of all, to see sin as it really is. Faith, as we look at the Scripture and believe what it says, faith tears away that pleasurableness and the deceitfulness of sin that Satan has so dressed it up in. The world and Satan and even our own wicked hearts. Brethren, we can make sin look so pleasurable and nice and friendly. But true faith takes it as what the Word of God says and sees it as something very bad. Secondly, you can look at Hebrews eleven twenty six on that. Secondly, faith causes us to lay hold of the promises of God that are revealed in His Word. Go over to Hebrews again. 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. From whence he also he received him in a figure. Now let's think about that a moment. You remember the story here. Abraham has a son, his own a son that came out of him and Sarah. And this was the son in which all the promises of justification. That's the gospel idea what Paul uh, Paul says that all that was about in Genesis. It wasn't about circumcision and infant salvation. It was about the justification of his elect, Gentile and Jew. Go to, go to Romans and you can go to Galatians and see that so plainly. But he tells Abraham, you take that son, your only son, that I have promised the whole world justification with. That is the world of the elect. And I want you to take that son and you go up to the mountain and you're to offer him as a sacrifice. Now, Abraham could have said, well, you know, if I do that, then that promise won't work because he'll be dead. And that's, that's how he, we would logically work that out. But for Abraham doesn't. Abraham does by faith. He says what? When he was tried, offered up Isaac, and, that, and he that had received the promises, that is Abraham, offered him up his only begotten son. Verse 19, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. You see, this is how he reasoned it. God has promised me that through this son, then all the promises are going to come to pass. If I put him to death, I'll have no son. But I believe that promise that God has made me. So then he will even take Isaac, whom I'm about to slay, and he will raise him from the dead. That's how he believed and reckoned with all of that. Because the promise was through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, and so forth. 
if Isaac is cut off, it stops. But by faith, Abraham realized, if I kill him, God will just raise him up. Because those promises to me were true. And that's what he means here in Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19. Faith caused Abraham to lay hold of the promises of God and to believe that they were true, even despite the so-called impossibility of it. The world will say, Isaac's dead and he, God cannot and will not fulfill his promises through him. Abraham says, yes, he will. He'll even raise him from the dead. Because he says there, he accounts him that God was able to raise him up from the dead, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. That's how it works. Thirdly, faith causes us to believe God's word. Hebrews 11, verse 3. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. We believe that God made the world out of nothing, don't we? How do we know that? Because we can prove it through scientific data, data, data. No, it's through the Scripture, the Word of God. You remember the fiery dart that Satan hurled against Eve? What was the fiery dart's name? It had a title on it. It was called, Yea, Hath God Said? What should have Eve done? She should have believed what God was said. The day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. God said, Did He really say that? That was the name on that dart. Hath God said? Well, faith, brethren, causes us to believe it. Fourthly, Satan, remember, is the father of lies. So it behoove us then to look to the only source of truth. And that, of course, is God's word. And nothing else. Secondly, main point, and we need to realize that faith is God-given. Faith, saving faith, is not a byproduct of man's nature. This idea of free will makes you make the decision is the lie of the devil. Faith is of grace, and it is a grace that God gives to sinners. Faith is a good thing, and good things come from the Father of lights, from above. Thirdly, faith or belief is so important, and we need to see then something of the wickedness of unbelief. Contrast this now. If faith is all that it says it is and how important it is to the Christian walk, even unto salvation, because this is what God uses to impute righteousness to His people. For by grace are you saved through faith. If it's all this important, then think of the contrast then of unbelief. And notice how wicked then it must be. The wickedness of not believing the promises of God. It won't make us do what we ought to do. Hebrews again, chapter 3. And verse uh, 12. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. 
Verse 2 of chapter 4. For unto us was the gospel preached as well unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. And then fourthly, let me speak to all of us here this morning. Do you have then this faith of God's elect? True faith will live in obedience to God's law and commands. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not grievous. Do you have faith? Then you will keep the commandments of God. And true faith doesn't pick and choose which commandment to believe and which commandment to obey and not believe and not obey. It strives, you see, in an overall obedience to God's law. So you need to beware of such a faith that only makes you a half-hearted Christian. Because it's not true faith at all. It's a faith of the devils who tremble at God but are not justified before God. Be warned here this morning. You cannot leave this place and say you have not been warned of a half-hearted faith. A faith that truly does not sanctify your life. James again says, without works, faith is dead. Fifthly, To those who can see this morning that they don't have saving faith. Let me remind you then of the gospel command itself. To come to Christ for salvation. You say, well, I don't even have the faith to believe. Let me encourage you then to come to the one who has all faith to give. And that is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. If you come to Him, you will find every grace that is needed in order to be saved. The grace of repentance, the grace of faith. All of these things are yours when you come to Christ. Jesus said, All that the Father giveth unto me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. There's never been a sinner who has ventured upon Christ by faith who hasn't been saved. Never. And there never will be. And then to the Christian, let me encourage you then to use awful, no, use all lawful means to build up faith in God's promises and in His gospel. I think of the man who wanted his son healed. And Jesus said, if you believe, I'll heal him. He says, oh Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. So prayer is a good place to start. Pray for more faith. And then another means, very simple means you would never even dream out of if God hadn't put it in His Word. But He says, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You don't come to church, don't expect your faith to be built up. Because it is through this means, the preaching of the Word of God, that faith is built up. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. God chose the foolishness of this preaching to do these kinds of things. And then remember, the Word of God is the object of faith. So hearing of it then will move us by God's grace to have faith 
in it. You know, if you're filling your mind full of worldly philosophy and the worldly ideas, you know, what will you begin to believe? You'll believe that stuff, won't you? Well, the Christian is to be filling his mind through from the Word of God, preached and proclaimed in authoritative manner. Yes, this is what you're to believe. That's biblical preaching. It's not some limp wrist standing up here and saying, well, you know, this is pretty good. And, you know, man, well, maybe this isn't so true. But, you know, this, no, this is the Word of God. It is worthy to be believed. And you better believe it. That's authoritative. And you need to obey it by the grace of God.